This is Seth Stone, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 736 or text Radio Free to 33444 if you're on your smartphone listening and inside the United States. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 736 for the show notes or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. This week, we're talking to Seth Stone. Seth is a good friend of mine, actually. We were, um, he was a year behind me in graduate school. We met there. We both realized we had a passion for bringing evidence-based insights to the world of innovation. Uh, and we've both been walking that on our own different ways. Uh, he and I are both professors. Uh, he has re- recently written a book called Next, Reinventing Your Future Through Innovation and Starting a Podcast. So we're talking about a bunch of different ideas around innovation and a lot of the insights that he's had working directly in the trenches as a consultant and as a coach to a lot of different leaders. And then it's also kind of fun to talk to somebody who is just beginning their venture into the world of podcasting. So We'll be talking about why you shouldn't be afraid to cannibalize your own business or someone else will. We'll be talking about the role of organizational design and making sure you have a structure that supports whatever your innovation efforts are. And we'll again be talking about what it takes to to lead smarter, what it takes to lead innovation from a more evidence-based or empirical approach. Seth is one of those Radio Free Leader people trying to tear down that wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. It's a fantastic interview. So let's get started. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Seth Stone. I work in leadership development and human resource development with a little bit of a bend toward innovation and really, I guess, how it, how it gets embedded into an organizational culture and, and what all that looks like. And I mean, you do that, you're being nice to yourself. You do that in a variety of different ways. There's the book Next, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, but you're also shaping young minds in your role as a professor. Uh, And you're also a podcaster. So you're like a carbon copy of me, which is a little kind of weirding me out, but I think it's going to make for a fun conversation anyway. Let's go for it. So definitely. um, I want to, let's start with the book. so I'll, I'll admit that anytime, and granted, I'm guilty of contributing to this, but anytime I see sort of a, uh, this is everything you need to know about innovation type of book, I'm, I'm immediately kind of skeptical because it seems like what most of those books are doing is saying, if you just use our model, everything will be perfect, right? So if you just sure. use um, this sigma, or if you just follow the design thinking methodology, or if you just follow this, you know, sipsy creative solve problem solving process. And not to say that those things aren't great, but the reason so many of those things exist is that no one of them works all of the time. And I was actually kind of pleasantly surprised to see that in next is you're coming at it from the angle of there's lots of different things that we can pull. So you pull some from design thinking, you pull some from um, Six Sigma, you pull some from a lot of different um, organizational design or behavior concepts. Because I mean, really, I think if our goal, I mean, your subtitle is re- reinventing your future through innovation. If that is our goal, 
future's a long time. No one model is going to get us all the way there. Is I, I'm putting words in your mouth, assuming that's the the reason for kind of what led up to this book. But if I'm wrong, please tell me. No, you're you're absolutely right. That's that's the idea behind it. I think, like you said, there's there's so many different methodologies out there because I'm very much like you in the sense that anytime someone comes and tries to sell me, this is the one and absolute cure all for your organizational needs or your innovation needs. I'm I'm immediately skeptical uh, because re- I mean every organization is just so different. Uh, whether it's how they're structured or or the culture. So really one of the main messages I was trying to get across in presenting some of these different ideas is innovation has to start as a mindset. I think we have a a general misperception, uh, at least among the consuming public. But you got to remember too, right, those are also people who are managing and leading in organizations of all sizes. There's a, a a misunderstanding that innovation is often just that finished product that we see, but it's it's much more so a thought process and then an action process that uh, takes much longer. And depending on how an organization is structured, that's going to really look different in terms of its success at, at any organization. Yeah, and that's actually a really good segue to one of the first kind of subjects in the book I wanted to dive into because you talk about different mindsets and di- uh, different methodologies and mental models and that kind of thing. And you know, one of the things that's really interesting is when we look at a lot of uh, innovative firms, we tend to see, to be honest with you, a lot of waste. Right? I, I could fill I could fill a book with amazing things to say about Google, and I could also fill a book with products Google came up with that never sold. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's this tension because so much of our management training in business school that you know that you and I are guilty of giving is around the idea of efficiency and performance and productivity, and yet we have to balance that with this idea that innovation and creativity and design are messy processes. Exactly. It's it, in my opinion, it's one of the most difficult tensions for an organization to manage, which is why I think we don't get innovation right so often especially when you know there's there's people to answer to and and the innovation process in and of itself like you said so much waste comes out of it that oftentimes it becomes very difficult to justify those things you know on the bottom line especially when you're talking about shareholders involved and things of that nature so it's it's something you have to do, but again, at the end of the day, there's there's a justification piece that that comes in for every leader. That's whether it's a good or a bad thing. It's a practical reality that we're living in. So you know, managing that tension between okay, we have to be somewhat efficient, but if we just operate in this mode of rigid efficiency and never get outside of that, we're never going to do anything new. And then our competition is going to eventually leapfrog us. Okay. So here's where I ask the philosophical question is, is that so much of a bad thing, right? Like now, obviously we start from the assumption that we want to build an organization that will you know last forever, that will be built to last to steal one from, um, to Jim Collins, but there's always some level of cannibalization, even inside of innovation efforts. And so to some extent, like the death of products and the death of companies might be something we society-wise and the corporate market-wise needs. Um, in, the, in the same regard, the weirdest thing is it's kind of like if you want to live forever, you've got to be able to eat yourself a la Apple, right? You've got to be able to cannibalize your business so no one else does. So that cannibalization idea 
um, that really is driven from efficiency, right? We tried to make a product, we had a market, so then we tried to make it more and more efficiently and the market moved and we weren't ready. To some extent, like we need that, um, but also then we've got to learn how to not get eaten because if, if it's almost like if we don't cannibalize ourselves, nobody will. Does that, does that make sense or am I just like getting all vague and philosophical? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great philosophical question, a statement really that has very practical implications. I mean, that's where we get, that's where we get some credibility for the whole idea of, of creative destruction and, and its value in, in the marketplace. I, you know, I, I think personally, I think these things, uh, they, they tend to ebb and flow a little bit with time because it's not just about what's going on inside the organization at the moment. It's about external forces you know whether it's government regulation or the the you know the financial markets and economy or or what consumer preferences are. There's so many external forces that are going to drive this because you know sometimes you're in that you're in that just fight and survive mode, and sometimes you have a little bit more liberty with what might be going on in the marketplace to experiment and try new things. So there has to be a good level of understanding of not only what's going on inside the organization, but also outside the organization. And to your point of, of self cannibalization, I actually, I think that's really healthy. I mean, you look at some of the, some of the companies that are really prospering today, they're not afraid to cannibalize themselves. And, and I think that's the biggest hurdle is getting over that fear. But, uh, if, if you can do it, it, there's a lot of potential benefit. Hmm. So, this is also an interesting bridge to uh, one of the other chapters I thought was quite interesting because obviously we know um, this is part of it. So our assumptions, our philosophies, et cetera, they, they affect our struggle for efficiency or our struggle for innovation. But they also, all of those philosophies and mental models, uh, they instruct how we actually sort of design the organization, right? So if we're assuming that we're going to make this innovative product and then we're, we're going to take as, uh, make as much money and make as much market share as we can until the market shifts and then we're just going to fold and all go do something else, we design our company one way. If we're trying to be built to last, we um, design it another way. And so organizational design really becomes part of that innovation strategy uh, of what we're trying to do. It really influences uh, everything, which is sort of, I mean, it, it's again, this idea of systems versus people. If, even if you put good creative people into a bad system, you're not going to get the innovation you want. You've got to start with the process and the system and the design first. Exactly. That's... And, and you know, there's not one perfect organizational design out there. Again, we get back to kind of what we talked about earlier in that <clears throat> there's, there's no cure-all here. I mean, it, it's, been, it's been a really hot topic over the last, I guess, what, a decade of, of creating completely flat organizations. And in many cases, that, that doesn't work. I mean, if, 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 for example, if the United States Department of uh, uh, Defense was a completely flat organization. I, I would be very concerned uh, for the for our military efforts. You know, so you got to look at the confines of the environment that you're in. And I think where we get stuck here is sometimes we see a certain design or a certain structure, and we want to be that, but we don't understand what our own practical limitations are. Whether that be because of the sector of the market that we're in, or you know, we maybe we've got a thirty-year track record of of how we've been structured, and there's just maybe not the kind of flexibility that say a, a Google or or someone like that has. And so, there's value in different organizational designs uh, to be certain, but 
you have to, I mean, it really starts with, with the vision and the mission, you know, kind of like what you were saying. It's what's our end game? Where, where do we really want to go? And so organizational design is going to be that foundation because if you take a, a wildly creative person and, and put them in a, in a rigid hierarchy where they have no room to experiment, well, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to thrive in that environment. So it's, it's understanding the people that you need based on the design that you've chosen. Hmm. So that, that's a, another cool pivot because one of the things that, that I always find interesting is the role of human capital and in particularly kind of human capital development in this, right? So we just said, if you take a creative person, you plug them into a bad design, it's not going to happen. But there's, to some extent, we have, uh, once we get the design right, we have this war for talent that assumes that we need to kind of go out and acquire star creative, star performers, et cetera. And there's a lot of research from the human capital uh, development side that shows that really if we take care of those people uh, and we grow them, we might actually end up better off than if we just try and acquire them for other firms. And I, I think this is particularly relevant. I mean, it's 2016 and one of the the big buzzwords of this year and last year was this idea of an aqua hire, right? The idea that we actually take, especially in the tech realm, we actually buy companies just for the people, just for the human capital. We're not interested in the product at all. We're just interested in those people. And again, like that works, but also we need to be growing them and we need to be growing the people we're not just trying to acquire in order to keep this whole thing sustainable. Yeah, that that's something I... I am heavily in favor of the the whole obviously being in leadership development and human resource development. One of my one of my main areas of focus is developing people. I think it's critical to organizational sustainability. I mean, you can only go out and acquire so much talent and sometimes that really doesn't work. And I you know, I'll give the most basic sports analogy. Everyone knows the New York Yankees. You know, they go out and spend 200 million dollars and on paper they have the best team. Uh, but now they find themselves in a position where they're rebuilding and actually trying to groom their own internal talent because it didn't work. You, you can't just throw money at these situations all the time and expect them to pan out. But I think there is a balance. You know, going out and finding someone who is highly talented and brings the skill set that perhaps you're lacking, they also bring in a fresh set of eyes and and can look at things from sort of a different perspective that you may not might not be seeing but yeah absolutely the the development piece it is it's it's like you said it's going to show employees that they that they're cared for because i mean the research is showing uh, these days that people aren't just going to work for the paycheck it's becoming a more it, it's a more holistic experience for them what does the entire package include and that's especially true i think with millennials and and they're the ones who are flooding into the workforce now. And, and we have to remember 10 and 15 years from now, these are going to be the senior managers and, and senior leaders. So internal development is, is crucial to long-term sustainability at this point. Boy, if that's not a scary thought, right? As much as, and I mean, I say this as a millennial, but as much as people complain about them young kids, it's kind of like, look, whether you like it or not, they're going to rule the world in 20 years. Well, maybe 30 years. I hear they're slackers. So <laughs> maybe 30 years. 
So uh, interestingly enough, in the realm of innovation, I also want to say that uh, one of the things I admire is you practice what you preach. And there are a number of new innovative ideas uh, and ways to get ideas out there. It's not just books. It's not just consulting. It's not just the professor world. You yourself have actually dipped your toe into the podcasting world um, as another medium with which uh, and a new innovation with which to get your ideas out there. Your show is called uh, Lead This. It's a pretty good show. They've got some pretty good guests. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm biased because I've been one of them. Um, but tell us a bit about the show. Absolutely. And, you know, to, to your credit, you were the one that really spurred me on to well, this. That drug you <clears throat> kicking and screaming into the world of podcasting. Let's be you honest. brought me kicking and screaming into the world of podcasting, but you definitely sold me on it eventually. So I, I owe a, a debt of gratitude to you. So thank you for that. Um, you know, I, I was looking at, I think really where my pause was and in, in jumping into this whole realm was, okay, what, you know, what area of the, of the market are, are we going to really serve? And then as I had some kind of conversations in my mind and then talking to some peers and colleagues, I ended up connecting with a, with a peer of mine, my co-host, Lisa Adams, and we started kicking the tires on doing a, a co-hosted podcast. And as we really started to unpack what that looked like, uh, we thought, okay, you know, we're, we're here to add to the discussion. There's plenty of other great discussions going on out there about leadership, but the reality is I don't think we can ever have enough. I think there's still, there's still opportunity for us to learn and grow together as a, a podcasting community, if you will. And so for us, we, we landed on lead this because there's so many already existing, but also emerging opportunities and challenges for leaders. And we just want to be able to have some open and, and honest discussion about it. Uh, Lisa and I are both in the leadership development space, but we come at it from slightly different angles. So we think it makes for neat conversation. She's a very seasoned career coach and I'm obviously working hands-on in terms of leadership development and programs through you know various platforms, but again, kind of coming at it from a slightly different angle. So we're able to, to I think you know have some some meaningful discussion, and I'll give you some examples. You mentioned that you were on the show. You know, we got to really unpack some of the ideas and, and concepts that you presented in your book. That's the under new management. That's you know challenging the way we've managed people for. Decades and decades, and and so, and you know, we we actually had a guest on who was a consultant. He's a strategist and, and futurist, and he was talking about uh, the impact on of mergers and acquisitions on organizational culture. Very important and relevant in this day and age. And we we also actually had on a first time CEO. So just kind of talking through the challenges of what's that like for the very first time, and while they seem to be specific in their focus. I think even a, a junior manager can learn something from a first-time CEO, can start asking the questions you're asking in your book, can start thinking about, hey, what's going on in our organizational culture and how can I be a part of the solution if we have problems? So this is this is for existing current leaders and, and people who aspire to uh, be leaders themselves as well. 
But see, I think that would be absolutely fascinating, right? So often we interview the Jack Welches or the CEOs at the end of their successful tenure as a CEO. I, I do. I want to hear the uh, 90 days in and holy crap, I wasn't expecting that type of CEO banter. So um, I think that's fascinating. So, I mean, I, I'm obviously checking that interview out and I encourage other people to do the same. The podcast, again, is is Lead This. The book is next, Reinventing Your Future Through Innovation. The person, again, is Seth Stone. Seth, you know what's coming next are five questions for all guests. Are you ready? I'm ready. First question, what's the best advice you've ever received? This is a tough one because I've been pretty fortunate. I've gotten some good advice over the years, but the piece of advice I've found myself giving out the most in the, in the last couple of years was uh, something that was shared with me when I was in my twenties. And that was, don't ever put all of your career eggs in one basket. And when I heard that when I was in my 20s, it, it really rocked my paradigm. You have to understand, I, I grew up in the Albany, New York area, and we actually, here at the time, we had a tremendous amount of, of GE employees. And so the, the previous two generations before ours, you know, they would go to work for GE. They would work their 35 years, and depending on whether they were a welder or an engineer, they'd walk away with half a million to a million bucks in company stock, a nice pension. And that's just, we know this, but that's not just not the world we live in anymore. And as having started my career in financial services in, in New York City, you know, you have, you are laser focused. You have one singular mission and that is to climb that, that corporate hierarchy as quickly as you can. And so the thought of really diversifying myself and who I am in my career, like I said, it really shifted my whole thought process. Um, so, and I think once I learned how to do that and what that looked like, it really opened up my world to seeing how many different cool possibilities there are for things that we can do and ways that we can contribute. So that's, that's the best advice I think I've ever gotten. Don't ever put all your career eggs in one basket. You know, actually, we just interviewed somebody that had a very similar uh, piece of advice. He told him that his uh, mother or grandmother said to always have kind of three different business things you're working on at the same time. I don't know what's magic about three, but definitely the idea of not all in one basket. Uh, second question, what's an average day look like for you? Busy. <laughs> um, you know, it's one of the one of the cool things about not having all my eggs in one basket is that is that no two days ever seem to look exactly alike. Um, the one thing that I, I really do to kind of bring stability is I try and keep my morning routine the same. I mean, I, I'm not a morning person by nature. It's, it's, it's very painful for me, but I, I do, I try, I try and I get up around six o'clock, you know, I have a, I have a block of time where it's just time for myself and then to organize my thoughts, get ready for my day and, um, you know, be prepared. Then I'll, I'll go into my office and, meetings, conference calls, things like that. And then the evening is usually when I have time to kind of settle down and write or grade student papers, things like that. And during the baseball season, I always make sure to I, I that I watch three innings of every Mets game. I'm a big New York Mets fan because that's just oh, sort of... Oh, now I know why you went after that whole Yankees nod. Oh, now I get it. Yeah, now it all makes sense, right? Uh, that's just sort of my way to decompress in the evening, um, you know, from from everything else that goes on. So that's that's sort of the typical day. No, that's fair. 
What are you reading right now? Right now, I am actually reading The Power of the Other by Henry Cloud. I I love his writing style. I've, I've always enjoyed that. But one of the things I, I love about about Henry Cloud, I, I just I have a deep appreciation for his psychology background and um, how he's consistently able to tie that into into leadership. And, and I think it it just provides some really unique insights that we don't get from from other places. And and so in this book, it's it's really cool just because it's talking about relationships in in our lives. And right now, I'm I'm slightly obsessed with the employee engagement and how leader behavior affects that. So. Because, uh, you know, we're all going to have relationships. It's just which are going to be the positive ones and which are going to be the toxic ones and how do we navigate that. So it's a, it's a good read. What do you believe that most people don't? This was a tough one. And where I, where I landed, because there, there were probably a few things I, I could have pointed out. But where I landed was I, I genuinely believe that virtually everyone has leadership capacity to some degree. That said, I, the world doesn't need 7.4 billion CEOs, right? So that's not what I'm talking about. But in just in my in in all of my different work and in my research, I've run across so many people that just don't think they can be a leader. And and, and the reason, I mean, there's a myriad of of reasons for that. And so I think, and to piggyback on that, I think so much of the issue with people seeing themselves as leaders or accepting that they're in a leadership role is almost as much about internal conflict as it is with external environment and, you know, conflict and circumstances. So that actually brings us beautifully to our last question. The title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? Well, at its most simplistic level, I would say positive influence on others. And I include the word, we, we talk about, you know, people say leading is influence and uh, influence is a, often a part of the discussion. But I, I like to include the word positive uh, because influence takes on many forms. And without the right context or the right training or the right mindset or understanding, influence and coercion are often easily confused. And Coercion, as we know, is simply about exercising power. And history, I think if we look back at, at history, uh, it shows us that you know power has a finite timestamp on it, whereas pure and genuine influence leaves a legacy. And I think every great leader wants to, to leave a legacy. So I'd say positive influence. Mm, those are great answers. Uh, the book, again, Next, Reinventing Your Future Through Innovation. Uh, Seth's new podcast is Lead This. We'll have links to all of those uh, in the show notes. Seth, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. David, thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure.